Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Nottingham Playcast. The podcast is about to begin. Please take your seats. Hello and welcome to the Amplify podcast. I'm Craig Gilbert, Amplify producer at Nottingham Playhouse. Now we've entered our third national lockdown, I'm once again holed up in my makeshift bedroom studio, having a series of interesting conversations with exciting theatre folk. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to the Amplify podcast. I'm Craig Gilbert, and today I'm joined by the brilliant Matthew Zia. Hello, Matthew, how are you doing? I'm very good, Craig. Thanks for inviting me in to have a chat. Very much looking forward to it. Um, to start off with, how is uh, how is lockdown Mark Three looking for you? What are you passing the time with? Oh, I'm glad you've specified and you haven't just said how's it going, because um, I find that a bit of a trick question that I don't really know how to answer anymore. But you've you've focused in. You've given me a time uh, reference. Lockdown Three. How is that? It's the worst of all of them, isn't it? It's like dimin- diminishing returns, like with every great series of sequels. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and now we're on the third one. Uh, it's really run out of steam, I find. Uh, there's very little to it that's novel or interesting. Um, I feel like this is... It's, I'm really trudging through this one, if I'm honest. I feel like the first one was fun, and I'd never quite camped in my house before. Um, and the second one was annoying, but time-limited, and I could see a way out of it, which mainly involved Christmas and eating lots of food. And then I guess there's that thing, isn't there, of like the new year, new start, new me, new us, new world. (laughs) And it hasn't been. It's been quite the opposite of that, in that it is almost exactly the same as it was before, but without the weather. Yeah, exactly. That I mean, I think that that is the thing. Uh, this one does feel particularly bleak uh, because, as you say, the lack of novelty. Like, I know where everything is now. Yeah. Uh, my, yeah. my my five second commute, which was once a joy, is now frankly far too long. Actually, <laughs> um, <laughs> no. the, the grey sky out the window is a mere reflection of my soul at this point. But um, yeah. there we have it. Um, but uh, on on a happier note, how's uh, how's how's uh work looking in lockdown mark three are you uh are you keeping busy are you are you managing to carry on making things at atc yeah we have a really weird kind of time of it if i'm honest uh so i think to answer your your again immediate question i can now see a bit of a horizon and i can see land coming into view and that excites me and i've got a sense of what the future might feel like look like uh and i feel like there are some things that are almost impossible to mess up that's what i think i think the thing I'm hoping to do this year is a thing that that I made some work for last year in the midst of the pandemic. So I can only hope that as we come to the tail end of it, or what feels like the tail end of it, uh, the chances of that happening are even more secure. Um, and then having lots of conversations with people about work, you know, I guess post-autumn 21. And again, that all feeling really positive. I'm getting excited about ideas and dreaming up creative teams. And then looking back ever so slightly, uh, actually today we've just launched a, a, a series of digital uh, pieces that we'll, we'll launch one every day this week, which is called Dear Tomorrow, Hope from Home, uh, which is like the extension of a, a project we did last year where we sent real tangible physical letters to people that they performed in their own spaces, in their own homes or remotely to their own invited audiences. And now we've done that again, but we're not sending the letter. You just click a link and open a letter and it is read to you by a brilliant actor. So I think it's, I mean, you know what I mean? It's like there's been lots of ways of, of remaining creative, keeping artists paid, engaged, and uh, engaged with their own creativity as well. 
but also finding ways of engaging audiences that still feel theatrical ultimately yeah um, that is the trick um, and where where are you at with that how um how do how does the uh the online experience still insist on its theatricality how are you doing with that uh i would say this one kind of doesn't if i'm honest uh so I'm really accepting that this is a digital project. In a way, it's a series of, of monologues on film. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess what we've tried to hold on to is that the, the reader is kind of reading it live for the first time. Now, they may have had a scan of it, but they've not read it out loud before, mm-hmm. um, which is just to avoid any kind of hiccups, I guess, in the reading of it. Whereas the last time, when we did Dear Tomorrow, and it was a real genuine letter-writing experience, um, I basically I prayed to the theatre gods and I said, what is theatre again? Remind me. Uh, <laughs> and the theatre god said, um, you just need an empty space and a person to walk across it and someone else to watch it. And I said, oh, yeah, we can do that. So the empty space can be someone's front room. The protagonist is the person reading the letter and the audience is whoever they're gathered with. And then I got really interested in ritual and, and the ritual of theatre. So it was about controlling the environment and lighting a candle and turning the lights down um, and turning off all your alarms on your phone and things like that. And we got some really lovely responses from that and it felt incredibly theatrical um, from what people described. Not that I would never know because I was never there. Um, But, you know, in terms of connection, real live connection in shared space, um, I felt like we really achieved that last time. And just on um, uh, uh, asking the theatre gods, remind me what theatre is again. Can I ask... um, (laughs) Where did uh, uh, in the dim and distant past? Where did it? Where did it start for you? Your relationship with the theatre. In fact, let's even go further further than that. Where are you from, Matthew? Where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in East London uh, in a in a place called Leytonstone, uh, which is mm-hmm. which borders Stratford, uh, and therefore I was incredibly lucky at the age of eleven when I wandered down to my local youth theatre, uh, and it was in one of the best theatres in the world, uh, with a complete focus on all the things that I now believe to be my ethos. But that's probably because I've been indoctrinated in a very Stratford East kind of way of thinking. Um, but uh, and what was it in the first place that made you wander down to the youth theatre? Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Um, uh, attention, I think. Uh, I mean, we can we can delve quite quickly into this. Uh, single parent household, low income, uh, mum often out working. Uh, I was told often as a child I was a naughty boy, an attention-seeking naughty boy. And I think... Uh, coming out the other side of lots of therapy and lots of discussions much closer to the age of 40 than the age of 10 uh, I realized that was acting out you know it was a a kind of cry for help Um, and I realized I guess the way I've kind of started putting it is I realized I could steal the ball and run around the playground for half an hour getting all the attention that I wanted or I could stand on stage and do some brilliant impression of somebody or juggle or do some ventriloquism or whatever it was that a seven-year-old kid does to entertain their peers um and then someone, and, and I kind of found that that got me a similar amount of attention to uh, acting out or being naughty. And then somebody mentioned that the local theatre had a youth department and I wandered down and that was in 1993. And I think that's where this all started. And uh, how long were you part of the youth theatre at Stratford East? Uh, so I left the youth theatre at 16 because I believed I had exceeded all expectation by getting a part in a short film directed by Armando Iannucci. Uh, and so I wandered back to Stratford East telling them I was too big for youth theatre. I'd made it. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Um, and um, uh, is it a good short, was it a good short film in the end? Oh, yes, yeah, it's brilliant. It was part of, um, I, I later found out, I didn't know who Armando Iannucci was at the time because I was 
15 or 16 or something like that. Um, But it was his directorial debut. I did not know that until I got back in touch with him much later on. Um, It had Daniela Nardini in it. And it was one of 10 short films that were like the creme de la creme of British cinema i guess um in that you know ray winston had was in one that was directed by bob hoskins ewan mcgregor had written another one jude law had directed another one so it's like this kind of yeah real snapshot of the the british film industry in 1999 or 1998 or something like that don warrington was in one clint dyer was the very reason that i was in one of them because he'd also come from stratford east youth theater yeah, so really proud of it. It was also the reason I decided to stop acting as well, because I'm incredibly <laughs> bored, sat in a trailer for two days. And was there a point on your journey through the youth theatre at Stratford East where you decided definitely, yes, this is the thing I'm going to pursue as a career, attempt to make my living at? I think no, but other people will tell you yes. So I say no, uh, and then I talked to Julia Samuels, who runs 20 Stories High up in Liverpool, uh, and she used to be the youth facilitator of the youth theatre I was in, or the second one, um, there was someone else before her. Um, But she keeps reminding me of a day when I said, this is great, Julia, but when are we going to do the real shit? And I'm sorry for swearing, but apparently that's what 14-year-old me said. (laughs) And (laughs) And what what did you mean? What did you mean? Well, that's what I said. I said, what did I mean? And she said, I think you meant writing and directing. I think you meant creation overview of story and narrative as opposed to to kind of bit player I guess um which like I say is news to me because I don't remember ever asking that because as far as I was aware I was going to become a hip-hop superstar DJ um and that was the path I was quite happily wandering along whilst also dabbling occasionally in writing bits of music for theatre uh and where then um where does the where does the directing come in when do you get the uh yeah So in 2002, I am DJing at Three Mills for a production that John Z. D. is directing for the Stratford East Youth Theatre, which I've left. I left, I'm now, I don't know, 21 or 22 or something. Um, And this guy walks in, uh, and I remember this moment so clearly. Um, His name's Alts. He was all dressed in black. He was considerably older than anyone in the room, uh, completely bald walked up to me and he said, uh, I'd love to talk to you about a musical I've had an idea for. And I went, okay. And he said, Philip Headley, who was the artistic director at Stratford East, uh, thinks you're the person to help me do it. I said, okay. Uh, he said later on, when we then arranged to have a chat, um, Jay-Z has just sampled Annie's It's a Hard Knock Life to make Hard Knock Life. Do you think it's possible to sample an entire musical recreating that musical for today? Uh, And I said, yes. Um, And there's a gap here, I guess, which is that I'd also become a bit of a hip hop DJ and rapper and producer and lyricist and things like that, just at home in my bedroom and then on a little pirate radio show. And then that had been picked up by the BBC. So I was now, I had a nationwide show on One Extra uh, that went out every week. And so that was my main thing. Um, And so me and Alts make this show and we make it with the young company, first of all, and it does incredibly well as a young company production. And then Philip Headley says, I want to do it professionally. So we get the rights and we recast the whole thing. Um, some members of the young company come through into the professional production. Uh, there's a young lad in there called Marlon Swoosh Williams in one of his first dance experiences. He meets the choreographer of the show. His name was Steady Steadman. They go on to create Flawless. It's like there are loads of little gorgeous happenings that happened in this show. Um, 
But like I say, I was just on stage DJing and I wrote the music and wrote some of the lyrics. But while we're doing that, Alts says, um, and people should look Alts up, U-L-T-Z, because he's a bit of an icon in, in British theatre. Like he designed Jerusalem and won the Olivier for best design for Jerusalem. Um, he said, there's this play by a guy called Jean Genet, who again, I'd never heard of. Uh, it's called The Blacks and it's kind of about 400 years of European interference in Africa. And I said, well, that sounds right up my street. And he said, yeah, but I want you to co-direct it with me as well as doing the music. And I said, I don't really know what that means, but I'll sit next to you while you direct it. And he said, that's what it means. Um, (laughs) I sat next to him and we kind of co-directed it, I guess. And we both had a vision on what it should be. Now, when was that? That was around 2007. In 2006, my job at the BBC had ended and I'd moved on to a, a smaller radio station. And I guess, yeah, life just started shifting to a point where in 2012, I had a, a massive DJing gig and I thought, I, I'm happy to leave this here, actually, and just go and focus exclusively on on directing. Um, so, yeah, I, I put the focus on that and then applied for the RTYDS and moved up to Liverpool and went and assisted David Lan on a show. Um, so, yeah, I guess I put a bit of strategy behind that bit of, of ambition. And what was it about that? Because um, obviously, you, you know, you've been in rehearsal rooms for uh, and rooms where things are being made for quite a long time. But I, uh, by the time you are, you're co-directing with Ults. But what do you think it was about that experience that made you uh, think, yes, actually, this thing, this is the thing that I want to go after? I think I was getting closer and closer to an understanding that what I did as a DJ and what I did as a director were fairly similar. If you'll indulge me briefly, Craig. Oh, definitely. Um, it's not an indulgent. I, I, um, I was going to ask that you go you go further on that because it's fascinating. Yeah. So there's a book by a guy called uh, Bill Brewster, I think, uh, and it's called Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, and it's all about the history of of the DJ, uh, as in club DJ, I guess, playing recorded music to audiences in a enclosed space. Um, and it goes back to all sorts of human beings uh, who have been reconsidered by history like Jimmy Savile for example who was the first individual to have two turntables in the UK uh, and play seamless music from one to the other because it was cheaper than employing bands for example Uh, Mm -hmm. and that was back in the 50s I believe Um, but in his book Bill Brewster talks about the shamanic figure going all the way back to kind of you know ancestral cultural beginnings Um, and that that shamanic figure who is the orchestrator for the energy of the evening. And I realized, as, as whilst reading that, but also whilst thinking, that the stories I wanted to tell were the same stories. I was never the inventor of the story. I didn't write the stories. The music I was fascinated by was music that I connected to. And the writers, overwhelmingly, came from poverty uh, because it was hip-hop music. And the hip-hop music I was into, the music I was into was underground hip-hop music. So it really was about... Um, injustice and oppression and upliftment and empowerment and the the stories I gravitated towards by wandering down to Stratford East were exactly the same so I found work by Tundi Ecoli with Scrape Off the Black or the Posse or the BB Crew Um, and again these were similar stories I guess so what it is in a club setting I think is that I get two hours to to where I'm in control of the energy of the room whatever you want that to be, or the narrative that is shared, this shared experience. Um, But I do it live. um, So I'm responding and feeding off the audience. Where do they want to go? We've been here too long. Let's go somewhere else. Up tempo, down tempo, give them a break, give them a rest, Um, surprise them, whatever it is. 
And I do that, of course, in the theatre as well. But I get four weeks to work out at a granular level just how those pace shifts happen, where the surprise comes from. Um, And like I say, I think the story that I'm searching for is going to have a similar kind of content or fabric to it as the stories that I'm investigating when I'm playing hip-hop music. That's really long-winded, but I think... And this came, actually... I remember going and having a chat at the National Theatre Studio, uh, and I won't say which time period it was, because that would connect it to a human, but the human at the time said, Matthew, your CV is schizophrenic, which I took massive offence at, because it didn't feel like that to me. It felt like all of these things were me expressing me. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I guess that's it, ultimately. Um, and so I wanted to... One, I wanted to do some investigation into the misuse of the term schizophrenia, and I did that. But two, I wanted to <laughs> look into um, to how to present a more holistic CV that doesn't look fractured and does indicate uh, a single vision, I guess. And and how, how did you set about doing that? By looking backwards, by looking backwards into my life, uh, all the things I did and why I did those. Um, and this is something I, 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 when I'm mentoring or coaching, why is such a crucial question. And there is a book by a dude called Simon Sinek called Start With Why. And it's all about business and marketing, really. But it's about vision. And it's about the reason people believe in something or buy into something. Uh, and it's because their central why connects with the central why in the product, in the thing. So I guess, I, yeah, I started going back into my childhood and going, well, why did you want to stand on stage and show off and why did you start DJing and what was it you found in hip-hop music that spoke to you and what of that is still there now that you push forward with so yeah investigating I guess investigating self trying to get a greater degree of self-awareness why one makes the choices they do and um what is the uh so after you've had that experience with ults and then you gave a very brief pricey of i went to assist david lan and then i ended up in liverpool but what was the what was the first show you made as a solo director well, it was like a fringe show i made called in his hands um which no one really knows about uh because it wasn't reviewed or anything it just happened in a in a community hall but that was the first chance I ever got to commission a writer and work with a writer and cook an idea up and set the terms of the rehearsal room, which were dreadful because I had very little learning or understanding of what they could be. Um, I would say the first rec- recognisable piece of work that I made as a solo director was a piece called Sizwe Banzi is Dead by Adolf Fugard that I directed at the Young Vic. I won the Young Vic Genesis Future Directors Award and got to make that piece, which we then toured around the UK. Um, Partide era, South Africa. Um, But of course, for me, it was really about a kind of hostile environment sort of scenario. How difficult can we make it for people to work, to provide for their families? Uh, Because I'm always interested in the translation, of course. Like, Yes, this is a play about South Africa 40 years ago, but what does it say now about us here? So, yeah, that was the first piece I think I made. And what, um, what I'm quite interested in, though, is so you make this show in the, uh, in the community hall and you said, you know, talk about setting the terms of the rehearsal and working with a writer and not really having any learning at that point. Yeah. And, then, um, and then how long are we talking till you... Um, uh, win the Genesis Award and make the and make Swizzy Banzi is dead. Is that what two years or oh, even more? Yeah, I think even, even um, more. So, c- 
can you can you tell me what um the difference in the two rehearsal rooms as in by the time you make the uh, the young Vic Ge- the young Vic Genesis show you've had you've done assisting you've had you've done the le- you've done some learning but what did you take what did you take with you from that first rehearsal process in the community hall if anything yeah it's weird i haven't done from stratford east um and i don't think this was a stratford east thing i think this has just been some of the people that i've been around and i'm cringing before i even tell you this uh i i came to it with the understanding and you'll be pleased to know this has been completely inverted, uh, that the actor was the least important person in the room, which blows my mind now, because I'm like, who's doing the work? (laughs) (laughs) So that, you know, so there was this kind of top-down energy attitude in the piece that I made called In His Hands, which was that I was in charge, and I'd tell you all what to do. Such a wrong way of going about collaborating, about making work, about working with anyone else ever, I think. Um, So, yeah, what shifted was I realised that everybody in the room was were the most important people in the room. That's why they were in the room, making the work. So I now work with what I call a, a flat hierarchy, um, which means there is one there, but it doesn't need to be called upon whilst we're working. It only needs to be called upon in a crisis or when we can't quite agree on something. Um, and that is that the hierarchy that has always been there suddenly, you know, stands up again, as it were, or presents itself again. Mm-hmm. But if not, then we're, we're all just going to make the work and every idea is valid. We all have slightly different roles. My role is curatorial. Um, others is generative. Others is interpretive. Oh, uh, that's that's uh, that's interesting. Can you just unpick a little bit what you mean about um, a curatorial role, the director as curator? That's super interesting. Yeah. Um, so, I, again, it's part of a process. Um, the first bit is to curate the right humans to make the thing. Uh and we can call that whatever we want, casting or selecting the creative team. Um, and there is a lot of work that I do that is interpretive at the very start. And then once we're in the room with the company and everyone's been chosen for their jobs, then I think my job stops being interpretive and becomes about facilitating others' interpretation. And once we get to the end of that, which I normally hope takes about a week uh, in real-world terms, it's then up to them to make choices. And by them, I mean everybody else I'm working with, the composer, the movement director, the sound designer, the every actor playing every part on every single line and every single bit of punctuation. They're met with a choice. And what I would love for them to do is generate choice after choice after choice that feels real, non-cliched, interesting and alive. And I will work out the parameters of that choice, I guess. So I think that's what I mean by curatorial. They're good. It's not quite that I'm going, no, not that, no, not that, no, not that. Yes, that's the one. We'll have that. Mm-hmm. But in a real soft version, it is that. But I don't ever want it. I don't ever want to freeze it in aspects. So I don't want to say, yes, that we'll have that every night. I want to work out what that is and then work out how much wiggle room you've got within that choice. So that tomorrow it could be slightly different, but the audience would receive the same production just uh, out of interest and you may uh, uh, not want to articulate this you know in in order to avoid you know killing the frog as it were but yeah. how do you go about creating the environment in the room where people feel comfortable offering choice after choice yeah good question um yeah there's something about environment what i try to do i'm very aware that on day one this is this all breaks down into the first two or three days I think ultimately and if you haven't quite done it then quite hard to make it happen but on day one nobody believes they should be in the room not a single person thinks they've been selected for the right reasons including the director very often Um, 
So day one is let's get to the end of the day. If we can remember each other's names, all the better. Uh, if we've read the play out loud, great. Um, but it really is let's get to the end of day one. So I'll often have some sort of weird icebreaker. So when I was in Liverpool, we did a show called Scrappers, which was about uh, a junkyard, a scrapyard. Uh, that's not what it was about, sorry, that's where it was set. Um, but the four characters had to scrap things throughout the piece. So I asked stage management to get me a washing machine, and we spent the first three hours of that day scrapping a washing machine. Um, and halfway through that, I suddenly thought, I want to complicate it further. So I said, oh... Uh, anything that's copper coloured is is worth so much. Anything that's silver coloured is worth so much. Anything that's plastic or rubber is is pure scrap and has to be thrown away. So suddenly they're now taking off screws from rubber washers, whereas before they'd just been throwing them all in a pile. So it gave them this fixed focus and objective to move together towards something. And I would always try and do that. And I would also try and excite people about the work. Um, so I'm going to jump into another analogy here, which is we're making a bit of clay pottery and we're all going to leave our fingerprints on it. So we have to be, we all have to arrive with the same degree of sensitivity and care about the thing we plan to make. Otherwise, one of us is going to stick their big thumb through it and leave a nasty hole in it. So that's really about the, cura the curation of the creative team, I think, and who's in the room. And I think Amsterdam, the work I did on a play uh, called Amsterdam, I did for ATC is a really good example of that. Um, in that, ostensibly, it's a play about the Holocaust. Everyone in the room, had they been making that play in Amsterdam in 19, I don't know, 43, would have been under threat by the Nazi regime. And that felt really important. And it didn't mean that everyone was Jewish. Uh, it meant that some people were disabled, some people were uh, Irish travellers, some people were black, some people were Turkish, some people were Greek. Um, it just meant that we were looking at what it meant to be other, because of course that's what the play is really doing. And then I've got there's this thing about like sharing and how much I am willing to share, um, and I try and lay all this out openly and easily, so no one expects me to tell anyone what to do. And I think the process of week one, the way I describe it, is like we'll move from the deep end of the sorry the shallow end of the pool to the deep end of the pool along the gradiated bottom, and we won't notice that by the end of the week we're swimming. So it's a real slow immersion in the piece that might involve watching documentaries and just having general chats around it. And in that, I'm just trying to empower everybody to have an opinion, have a thought. You're not just here because you can make a choice about the acting line. How does your worldview feed into that choice? How does your lived experience feed into that choice and inform that choice? So I think it's that. Um, and sometimes that can go wrong, of course, because uh, sometimes you give people so much freedom uh, that when you then say, I'd really love you to come on from over there, actually, they go, no, 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 I'm going to come on from over here. And they go, ooh, ooh, where's that soft hierarchy that needs to stand up again? No, I'm sorry, that sounded like a suggestion, didn't it? No, it's an instruction. Um, it's really important and clear if you come on from the same place you exited. Thank you very much. So it's a real shifty little game directing. I often think that. Um, because you are asking people to bring them full, their full selves to anything they do and then to empower you with the ability to turn off anything you don't like or don't want or isn't appropriate. One of the things I'm, I've been asking pretty much everyone who's uh, appeared on this podcast um, is 
about how you came about your process and in particular uh, because obviously I'm aware you uh, you had the opportunity to be an assistant and you watched some really great people at work and would have picked up tools that way but at the moment uh, certainly you know the artists listening to this we're all trapped at home um, the idea of being an assistant just really isn't possible at the moment and, and nor is really getting out there to undertake training so just were there any books or resources that were particularly important to you, aside from the ones you've mentioned already, that were um, particularly important in sort of piecing together a process or giving you an idea as to what your process might be? Yeah, the very first thing I ever learned about, and this was not from books, and this is what I did maybe for the first four years, five years of directing, uh, was uniting and objectives. And that just felt like absolute gold so you and I don't know if sure I can explain units anymore because I've changed my own understanding of them um but it used to be when you felt like there was a new intention a character had a new intention and you'd mark that on the page and you'd get every actor to work out their objective before that moment and then see if it had changed after it or if there was a new intention at, at that point of unit shift and then I when I assisted David Lan um he had this really kind of soft uh anthropological approach to scripts I guess in that he kind of wandered through the script just asking questions as and when they came up and looking at how they related to people's lives in the room and I thought that was also incredibly useful and then I've seen many people get up too early and that's the thing I'm really against uh where you're you know day one you're standing up and you're making the play mm-hmm. day two you're on act two and you, you know you get a real quick draft of what it all is and then you go back to the start Tell me, tell me what, tell me why you're against that. Um, um, Kate, Katie Mitchell brilliantly calls that doing violence to the actor. But um, tell, tell me why you're against it. Yeah, uh, my my theory is is so much work has been done for us. Uh, take it. Many of the greats have already put it in better terms to me, uh, better terms than me. So uh, Simon Stevens says the script is just the blueprint for an evening in the theatre, or that sort of thing, right? But what that mm-hmm. blueprint is going to give us is some brilliant scaffolding and most of the cladding as well so when we stand back and look at the thing we've built we go yeah that looks like a house great what it doesn't have uh, is all the imagination that needs to be squeezed into all of the um all the gaps that are left by that blueprint i guess and that's where actors and creative teams get to get to do their work their best work to create to dream to imagine to invent so week one for me uh is often me going, no, that's conjecture. No, that's conjecture. No, you don't know that yet. And they're going, no, but I do know Romeo dies. I go, you don't know that. We've not got to the end of the play yet. But I've heard of it before. I've read this play. I go, I don't care. You don't know. This version might have a different ending. I might have ripped off the last page. Let's approach everything brand new. So my real big kind of process, and this has come, I will mention the books as well, um, is like day one, take the curse off of it for everyone. The next four days are data extraction, uh, in which we will take every fact out of the play and put it on some list somewhere. Uh, and once we've done the data extraction, we can then begin to imagine and build. So that's the process. So week one, I love the fact that we sit and immerse ourselves in why is that full stop there and not there? Why is that a hyphen and not a comma? Why doesn't that sentence end? What do you think they were going to say at that point? Um, hold on, if they bought a bag of bread on Monday 
uh, and they're using the same bag of bread a week and a half later. I reckon it's probably got some mold on it. I don't think they've got much money or whatever, you know, like I really want to do that investigative work with a company so we all know what the playwright has created. Then we do our job. But it feels like we're trying to intervene. And my, my big worry, and this is, again, kind of slightly metaphorical, I guess, is that we stand back in week four and we look at the house we've constructed and it's all gone a bit Leaning Tower of Pisa because we didn't do the data extraction at the start and we did jump to conclusions. Um, why would anyone stand up from the table without knowing what they were going to do, who they were? Um, so, that, you know, they're the things we're agreeing around the table. Who is this person? What motivates them? And now we can go and have a go at it. And even when we get up, for me, again, like they, the first time we stand up, it's very unlikely anyone's going to say any text from the play. We might just move around a bit and look at each other and, and see what's happening invisibly without text, just by what we've extracted about character relationships, how someone looks at someone, how someone walks. Yeah, I, I enjoy the doing damage, uh, doing violence to actors. I'm trying to think of a, a similar... I guess it's like giving someone a bit of Rachmaninoff, isn't it? And going, right, there you go, play that. <laughs> I'm not going to get a chance to kind of run through it and work out what the dots are and where the tricky bits are and where, it, you know, no, 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 just go for it. Okay, I promise you I'll mess it up. Which is one way of doing it, isn't it? And maybe that's it, mess it up and then we'll work out what works. Um, but my granddad was a carpenter, so measure twice, cut once is my thinking. And and sorry, uh, just to, you said you were, you'd mentioned the books. Anything that yeah. was particularly important to you? Yeah, so my books are, are real simple. Uh, uh, of course, Katie Mitchell, Director's Craft, and a kind of super diligent, meticulous, if you've got a year to make a piece of work process. Uh, and wonderfully also shows you what you can jettison if you don't quite have that time and boils it down to 10 important points. Uh, Mike Alfred's Different Every Night, Freeing the Actor. Um, and for me, that's some of the stuff I was talking about, about setting parameters around choices so that the actor can deliver something fresh every night and yet the audience are experiencing the same production. I think sometimes actors get that slightly confused and feel like they have to keep discovering things every single night, and you come back four weeks after and it's a different show. Um, and it's not that. Um, other plays for other, other books for directors, um, Die Trevis, and I can't remember what it's called. Maybe it's called Being a Director. I yeah, I think it, I think it is called. Yeah, that's that's an excellent book. Yeah, uh, I love that bit she's got about like declogging the work. Like if it's not working, check all of these things. A massive list of like, I can't remember any of them. Now. Is it the means? Is it the tact? Is it the energy? Is it the emotional state? Is it the blah blah and so on and so forth? Just just brilliant. Again, what I guess what we're looking for ultimately is language, isn't it? Shared language that enables us to get into an actor's head and and kind of mess around with coordinates and dials and things. So yeah, those. And then there are some wider books. That, like I say, Simon Sinek's Start With Why, which is a business book. Um, Nina Simon's The Art of Relevance, which is about why people enjoy art in the first place. Um, Neil Gaiman's Make Good Art, which is a speech that he gave, um, which has been published in a, a number of different formats. All really good. Um, and of course, the more kind of what I think heavier theoretical stuff like Peter Brook, David Aldridge, that sort of stuff. Uh, if we just change tack slightly and talk about your work in buildings and organisations, because yeah. uh, I just wonder at what point in your um, in your life as a theatre maker do you decide that actually being a freelancer with like two concurrent successful careers, maybe that isn't the thing for me and I need to be... Like within the organisation, 
Yeah, well, weirdly, I think what had happened is I'd, I'd been around Stratford East from, like I say, 11 to 16. At the age of 18, Philip Headley asked me to join the board of directors. And I did that, and I sat on the board of directors at Stratford East for 10 years, getting this overview of governance and arts council relationships and stakeholders and funders and HR and all of these things that, that went into the governance of an arts organisation. And the conclusion I'd come to is I want to be Philip Headley. I think that's what I'd realised very early on. And I didn't quite know what he did. I knew he made plays and I knew he made choices about the plays that should go on. But I think that was what it was. More than I want to combine my, you know, these two concurrent careers or I want to drop one or freelancing isn't the thing. I'd, I'd always wanted to be a Philip Headley. I'd always wanted to tell young, poor, I wanted to tell me, Craig, young me, that he had value and people would be interested to hear what he had to say because that was what Philip had done for me. But I didn't quite, I hadn't quite worked out what that was. So I knew I wanted to be an artistic director. So when I left Stratford East, like I say, I applied strategy and I went and assisted David Lan and then I went and assisted Gemma Bodnay and then I went and worked with Sarah Franken because I, I, I wasn't particularly interested in making shows. I wanted to know... Oh, this, oh no, that's really interesting. So, were you uh, already at that point strategic about the paths to becoming an artistic director? Yes. We were, were you already thinking that when you like when you applied for RTYDS and you did the eighteen month residency, didn't you? Which um, uh, which still exists. People can still go and do, uh, or still apply for, or still go and do. So you were you were thinking about it even then. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. And so, and like, I, I want uh, how strategic about it were you? Had you had you laid out, right, so if I do the RTYDS and then I need to go and work for a bit in London and then maybe I, I can apply for a, a more senior position outside of London, was it like that or was it um, yeah. less organised? Yeah. No, it was. I think it was that sort of strategic. I'd been associate director at Stratford East uh, for two years on a job share with someone else whilst mainly DJing um, and that had never quite enabled me to make a play and I thought no one's going to let me run a building unless I make a play myself. Um, so how do I get to do that? I need to leave here. They, they will only ever see me as the young kid who came up for a youth theatre until I leave and come back. So I left Stratford East for the first time. Like I say, I joined in 93 and I left in 2011. I didn't know there were other theatres until 2011 from 1993. <laughs> I just did all my work in that one building. Um and then I met David Lan, and I thought, oh, he's like a Philip Headley type character, isn't he? He's doing that same job. Uh, like the ignorance, my ignorance about the arts industry knows no bounds, uh, or certainly didn't at that point. So here's how strategic I think I was, Craig. When I applied for the RTYDS position, there were two people on my interview panel. One was Gareth Matchin, who ran the Salisbury Playhouse. Uh, yeah, and indeed still does. And indeed, who does? And the other one was Gemma Bodney, who uh, ran the Liverpool Everman and Playhouse. Um, and I walked into that meeting and they said, why do you want to work with us? And I said, I don't want to work with you, Gareth. I want to work with Gemma. <laughs> Which is just like cutting off 50% of the opportunity that I had in that moment. But as I said to him, I don't understand and I don't believe I will ever understand rural audiences. I don't understand what makes them tick. I don't understand what they want, but I do understand impoverished inner city communities because that's where I come from and that's who I want to work with and that's who I want to talk to and then when I was in Liverpool uh 
It was all about looking for artistic director positions. And I remember actually in 2008, I applied to be the artistic director of ATC because they reminded me of that when I went for it uh, two years <laughs> ago. Um, woefully under-experienced, qualified, prepared, but still went for it. And then once I'd finished in Liverpool, I saw this job for associate artistic director. And I thought, well, that's better than associate director. Because if I'm going to be associate director means I need to transform a word. I need to turn associate into artistic. Whereas, again, it's how simple my thinking is. At least with associate artistic director, I just need to lose a word from my job title, not gain one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Which was what I did. And then I I was really surprised. And I think Sarah Frankham took a huge risk on on giving me that job, actually. Um, Well, she didn't. But there were other people who I guess on paper were better positioned for that sort of job. Um, but I'm really glad she did. And I wish more people would make the sort of statement she did in employing me in that moment in time. Actually, something I get asked about a lot is um, paths to uh, artistic leadership and just the process of becoming an artistic director. And I mean, at a really granular level, as in what happens when you apply for the job. Uh, and obviously you're... Um, you were the Associate Artistic Director at the Royal Exchange, but you are a, still a relatively new Artistic Director at ATC. Mm. So would you mind just talking a little bit about the process of becoming a Artistic Director of Actors Touring Company? Yeah, I'll start by telling you it was probably the seventh Artistic Director position I'd been for in my life. Um, and I state that because I think if we don't talk about our misses, people think we're just a series of hits you know no that's brilliant I I say that to everyone on the podcast can you um usually a little bit later on but can you tell me a little bit about your failure failures so it doesn't just look like a ladder of progression I say that all the time so yeah that's great well there's a lovely failure I'd like to talk about if we have time for it um but yeah what it looks like is is you see the job come out in the world and you apply for it and that normally requires a cv and a a cover letter in which you state a bit about your ambitions for the company and your ambitions as a leader, maybe where you've come from and where you're headed. Um, And then you get interviewed and those interviews are gruelling. They're like, you know, there's often arts council present, other senior leaders from other organisations, plus the board of the company. So I think when I had mine, I had Paul Miller on one panel from the Orange Tree uh, who knows how much this counts, but I had Sarah Frankham on a panel uh, as well. Uh, there were also people I didn't know on panels, of course. And then you get tested. And, and my first interview was 45 minutes and then a 15-minute break and then another 45 minutes to a different panel. So they really, wow. really push you through the ringer. Um, and that's round one. And then you get called back for round two, which is often is where you present a season of work often some other extra kind of curricular activity, maybe some outreach work that sits around a piece of work, maybe some other schemes that you try and attach. So I did that and I really didn't expect to get ATC because I guess my background, ATC at the time I came to it was very much a theatre that presented European new writing. Um, My background wasn't new writing and my background wasn't particularly European. Um, But I guess what I promised was interesting enough, uh, exciting enough for them to want to grab hold of. Great stuff. And how are you finding it now um, Now you've got the position? In fact, how different is it to uh, being an associate artistic director? 
I think the, 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 the thing I'm really struggling with is the lack of resource we have as a non-building-based organization. So mm-hmm. it just means everything requires scaling up. We want to do a reading, we have to scale up. We want to do uh, a small sharing of maybe, you know, a bit of devised work, we have to scale up. We have to find space. Uh, we have to bring teams and staff in. So that's the the thing I'm discovering, whereas being, you know, the associate in a hugely resourced massive building means you can just commandeer a room for a week and be kind of getting on with things in there and if you've got access to to budgets that you can just immediately divvy up and go okay well that's there's all of this for r&d can i take this little bit of the r&d kitty for this now um on the flip of that what i'm finding is i have complete autonomy of course about the kind of projects and artists that we want to invest in and engage with and that's really exciting. That's, I, you know, I said that's why I wanted to do it. How can I say to brilliant young artists, yes, here's some money, be the best artist you can be. We'd love to stage your work. And that's something that, that's exciting me because it's enabling me to talk to moments in time. And the thing, and you know, to go back to like establishing a rehearsal room on your own terms, I now get to establish a company on my own terms. And I really hope to lead by example uh, and say, well, why don't other companies do this? Why don't other companies do this? If we can do it at such a small level, then surely you can do it with all the great resource you have, whoever you are, naming no names. Brilliant. And uh, well, thanks for taking the time to talk to me today, Matthew. I just have a couple of very quick questions to finish off, if that's all right. Yeah. So can you tell us about the last work of art that absolutely blew your mind? Uh, probably, if you just give me 30 seconds to remember the last time I saw anything. Um, (laughs) Yes, I can. I can tell you the last time a piece of work blew my mind, but it didn't blow my mind. It blew the tears out of my heart. It took me to a place of immense grief. Uh, And that's It's a Sin on Channel 4 by Russell T. Davis, the piece exploring the the many lives of those affected by HIV and AIDS in in the 80s and early 90s. And I guess maybe there was something about being so young at that time. So I was born in 82. And and I felt like, you know, my mum's best friend was a guy called Stuart, who is now no longer with us because of uh, complications from HIV and AIDS. Um, So I remember my mum saying, oh, Stuart's got HIV, not really knowing what that meant. Um, And then directing Into the Woods years later and being told that, you know, it, it might have been a comment on the AIDS crisis. And looking for that in the work and not being quite sure if it was in there or not. But again, and then this piece of work by Russell just dropped me in the middle of it and destroyed me in in a way that I didn't know was possible, really. Um, I've sobbed a number of times in my life. Only twice has art moved me to a point of sobbing, uncontrollable sobbing. And It's a Sin was one of them. Uh, And the other one was Roots, the remake of Roots with Malachi Kirby. So yeah, that. I'm really annoyed slightly, Craig, that it's TV. I shouldn't be, should I? <laughs> no, I don't think so. And also, you know, I did say, I did say the um, the last thing, and it'd yeah. be it'd be tricky for it to be something else now. I reckon. Uh, I mean, yeah, the options are somewhat limited. Um, one else that's not a bit of TV. It's something I ordered into my house from outside of my house, and it's Paula Varjak's incredible poster, which is what's it called? Manifesto for an art scene in crisis or something like that oh it's very good 
It's very. <laughs> um, I'm, looking it up. I'm looking it up so I can now at least read you. Uh, Paul of Arjak, look, there it is. Paul of Arjak poster. Manifesto for Artists in a Crumbling Arts Economy is what it's called. And it's just a giant pink poster, uh, a giant pink poster with like block black text on it. It says Manifesto for Artists in a Crumbling Arts Economy by Paul of Arjak. And I'll just read you the first little bit. Hustle the system, but not each other. Be open. Be honest. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Know your worth. Stand up for yourself. Share resources. Create opportunities. Galvanize. And on, and on, and on. It's brilliant. And it's not TV, so I feel like I've found something that I understand to be closer to art. Excellent stuff. And finally, if you haven't covered it with It's a Sin, can you recommend something that we can all enjoy in lockdown three? Doesn't have doesn't have to be a thing to consume, just anything. Yes. Sorry, I'm, I'm again flicking through the Rolodex of experiences and ideas and things. Uh, hip-hop songs that shook America on BBC iPlayer. There are six of them. Um, and I promise, even for people who think they, they're not into hip-hop, it's such a journey because, it's, of course, it's about a cultural understanding of a landscape and a world as much as it is about the, the actual records released and the time that they came out. Great stuff. Well, uh, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us, Matthew. It's been an absolute pleasure. Brilliant. Thank you, Craig. Thank you for listening to this specially recorded episode of the Nottingham Playhouse Playcast Amplify podcast series. To find out more about the Amplify programme or the rest of our work, visit nottinghamplayhouse.co.uk. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for all the latest episodes as they're released.